May 11, 1992, Marilyn Malera was with a group of people mourning a friend who had recently been killed by the Latin Kings. The group split up, and Marilyn went out with a friend and another mourner who they both had met that night, Jackie Montanez, who had her own sordid history with that gang. At around midnight, the three were driving near Humboldt Park when two guys who knew Jackie called out to her at a light. They all agreed to meet in the park to hang out. It turned out that these two men were members of the Latin Kings. Jackie lured one of them into the bathroom to make out, and when he stopped to urinate, she shot him in the back of the head. When she emerged alone, the other man asked about his friend, and Jackie shot him too. Marilyn and her friend were caught completely unaware and panicked they fled the scene. Then, the case fell into the hands of two of Chicago's now most infamous detectives who used incentivized snitches, false eyewitness testimony, and coercive interrogation tactics to pull Marilyn and her friend into a case that should have rested squarely on Jackie Montanez's shoulders. Then, Marilyn's hired attorney inexplicably advised her to plead guilty while getting nothing in return from the prosecutors, sending her directly to death row. News of this case would reach then 29-year-old law professor Justin Brooks, and it drove him to uproot his life and begin a -a two-and-a-half decade-long quest to expose the misdeeds of those detectives and have the evidence of Marilyn's innocence finally heard. She was released on April 8, 2020. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Blum. Beyond Zero is Toyota's vision of a carbon-neutral future and more. Toyota gives you the power to reduce carbon emissions and help move toward its vision with a wide selection of electrified vehicles. Whether you're into hybrid EVs for that traditional Toyota feel with better MPG, battery EVs for a smooth and silent ride, or plug-in hybrid EVs that switch between battery and fuel, Toyota has you covered. And for those who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions and move closer to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision. Visit toyota.com slash electrified vehicles slash beyond dash zero dash vision. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline.
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today we have an episode for you that is deeply personal to me, but it's even more personal to our second guest today, Justin Brooks. He is the founder and director of the California Innocence Project. Justin, welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Always a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. And I'm about to introduce one of the most extraordinary people and stories that I've ever met or heard. And when I say that, Marilyn Malero, who I'm going to introduce in a second, was sentenced to death in the 90s in Illinois after pleading guilty to a crime she didn't commit. So her attorney did such a terrible job that he actually resigned from the bar after the trial and became a priest. And Marilyn, I'm so Sorry that you have to be here because of what you went through, but I'm so happy you're here. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So this whole insane story began around midnight on May 11th and into May 12th, 1992, when two members of the Latin Kings were shot and killed in and around a bathroom in Chicago's Humboldt Park. But Marilyn, I want to go back even before that. You were just 21 years old. What was your life like before all of this happened? Well, I was a mother of two. I used to work two jobs, live with my brother. I sold drugs at the time to help pay for the bills. I mean, a single woman of mother of two, it's very difficult to pay for bills on your own. So I had to choose another method to bring some sort of income. And selling marijuana and um, cocaine was one of them. So you really had three jobs, two legal ones and one in the shadows, but no judgment here. I'm not a religious person, but let them who was without sin cast the first stone. And Justin, can you take us back to what happened and how the hell they decided to focus on an innocent woman when in fact they could have and probably did know all along who the real perpetrator was of this awful crime? Yeah, so... I mean, this case, Jason, and we can get into each one of these elements as we go along, involves every cause of wrongful conviction that you discuss on this podcast. Uh, This case involved a false confession, false informant testimony, a bad identification, a bad lawyer, bad judges, and bad cops. So pretty much all the causes of wrongful conviction occurred together. It was the perfect storm. Um, which led Marilyn to spend 27 years in prison for a crime she didn't commit. This case was such an insane injustice that it actually led you to give up your life as you knew it and found an innocence project, right? Yeah, this this case changed my life. This um, I'd heard about it. I was at the time in Michigan teaching law school, and I read in the newspaper about this young woman, Marilyn Malero, who'd been sentenced to death on a plea bargain. And when I read that, I thought, how could she possibly have been sentenced to death on a plea bargain? It's it's a plea, but it's certainly not a bargain. And, uh, you know, there's supposed (laughs) to be some kind of negotiated result where you get a lesser sentence as a result of you giving up all the rights that you have to give up in a plea agreement. And you're giving up your right to trial. You're giving up a lot of your appellate rights. And, you know, you're going directly to jail. And with her, she went directly to death row. And uh, I was so shocked by it that I found out more about her case. I ended up meeting with her um, on death row. She was uh, scheduled for execution. 
And I remember the day vividly, um, more than 25 years ago, sitting across from Marilyn and saying, how did you end up here? And she told me this remarkable story about how this lawyer who had never handled a case like this in the past, had no training on death penalty litigation, um, never negotiated anything with the prosecution, pled her straight up to the homicide case. And the result was she was sentenced to death. And then she said the most amazing thing, which is, and I'm innocent. Uh, and so I went back to the law school where I was teaching and I told my students her story. And I said, you know, who wants to help me out on this case? And four brave souls raved their hands and we started investigating it. And everywhere we looked, we found out that she was innocent and that her case was a complete fabrication. Yes, and of course, you know, when you first told me about this case, or however I learned about it, I became obsessed with it as well. And it kept me up many nights. And um, I was so thrilled when it finally resolved. Um, it, you know, it was nice for you and I'd have something else to talk about. After. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's go back to May 11th, 1992. Marilyn's out driving around with Jackie Montanez and another friend around midnight or something. The, the night before a mutual friend's funeral, who had been killed by the Latin Kings. They were near Humboldt Park, and they met two guys who knew Jackie, Jimmy Cruz and Hector Reyes. You know, these guys saw these three girls, and they started chatting at the light, and all three women went to Humboldt Park with these two guys who were members of the Latin Kings. Jackie went into the bathroom with one of the men. Uh, they were making out in the bathroom. He turned around to urinate, and she pulled a gun out and shot him in the back of the head. She then leaves the bathroom, and then there's two stories. The story that convicted Marilyn, which we ultimately proved to be false, was that Jackie walked over, handed the gun to Marilyn, and then she shot the second victim. What we now know happened was Jackie came out of the bathroom. The um, other guy said, you know, where's my homeboy? She makes a joke about it. She laughs and says he's taking a shit. He turns around and she walks over and shoots him in the back of the head in the exact same manner. Wait, so I have a couple of questions, but let's just start with this. How did they all not hear the gunshot from inside the bathroom? Yeah, we, we actually had a ho former homicide detective go to the park because I never understood why the guy outside wouldn't be fully alerted to what happened. But apparently, because it was a low caliber bullet, um, and it was a contact killing, meaning the gun was actually on the back of his head. His head actually acted as a sort of silencer. So there wasn't a lot of noise, even though it was a tiled bathroom. Do we know why Jackie did what she did? So what Jackie has, has said over the years is her motivation was a friend of theirs was killed by the Latin Kings. But there's also been a lot of talk about that she was doing it to rise up in the gang, to be seen as someone who would do something like this. So what did Marilyn do when the shooting happened? Well, Marilyn and the other girl are in shock. They see what happened. They run. And of course, you know, when you run, it's going to be equated to guilt. Neither Marilyn nor her other friend knew what Jackie Montanez was up to that night. And then ultimately, they're arrested walking out of this funeral um, that we've been talking about for their friend who'd been killed by the Latin Kings. And Marilyn, can you give us just 
from your perspective. So here you were, a mother of two. You're snatched off the street after this funeral. And you and 15-year-old Jackie Montanez, the, the woman, the girl, really, who actually committed this crime, were brought down to the Latin Kings. And detectives, I can't believe they did this. And detectives tell them, quote, unquote, these are the two girls that killed your homeboys, which put you at immediate and grave risk. It threatens to make your kids into orphans. And then the cops bring you down to the station, deny you legal representation, interrogate you for uh, around 20 hours without any sleep. And ultimately, you signed a statement that they had prepared. It was a terrible moment. We had just left a funeral. The detectives just came straight and arrested Montanez and myself. Then they parked. They received a phone call. Once they hung up with the phone call, they took us to Humble Park. We sat there for like a good 10 minutes and they were questioning us. I did not answer anything. After the 10 minutes, they took us to Beach and Spalding. They displayed us before the Latin Kings. And that must have been terrifying in and of itself. At that moment, all I thought of, it was my ending was right there, you know. Somebody's going to pull the trigger and kill us both. Then they took us to Grand and Central, placed us in separate rooms. And from then on, that's where the interrogation began. They took turns, Detective Guevara, Halverson, and kept questioning me over and over, trying to get me to admit that I've committed one of the crimes, which I kept telling them I did not. So the interrogation kept going back and forth between Guevara and Halverson. They wanted me to say something that I could not say. You know, they wanted me to lie, and I didn't want to lie, but they kept pressuring me and pressuring me. And it's just, you know, it becomes to where you're like, what the hell? Just leave me the hell alone. And, you know, I spent time just crying and it was like they didn't care it's they didn't care about the tears they didn't care about how I felt they didn't care about you know how they were pressuring me you know so you know mentally emotionally and physically it was very draining so Justin why was Marilyn in their sights and and how did they come to focus on her so this case started for Marilyn with a combination of some corrupt detectives uh, Detective Guevara and Halverson, who, by the way, have been linked to now dozens of exonerations in Chicago and more than $50 million in settlements for wrongful convictions. So you have a couple of corrupt detectives and a, a snitch who's just making stuff up and gave three separate statements that kept changing in order for them to be consistent with the detective's story. And it started with her saying, that Jackie Montanez had been bragging about these killings. Then once they got Marilyn into the mix, then she changed the story and said that Jackie just took credit for one of the murders. And then once they got a confession out of Marilyn, after keeping her for nearly 24 hours in custody and keeping her up all night, then they built this new story where now this snitch claims to have seen these girls before the shooting and had said that they were going to go do the shooting in you know, gang vernacular, which was that apparently they said we're going to roll on some flakes. And by the way, this snitch had been charged with a drug crime that night, which of course was later on dropped after they used her testimony. And all this was to build in the evidence they needed to make their case. And they were just literally just making up their case as they went along um, so it started with uh, corrupt detectives and a snitch, and then it went downhill from there. 
Now, Marilyn, you've now gone through this unbelievable ordeal, no sleep, 20-something hours in the police station, and you signed a statement prepared by the police. At that point, you probably would have signed anything to make this sort of torture stop, right? But did you understand what this meant? I mean, you were implicating yourself in both murders, one as a shooter and the other as a conspirator, right? Well, that was not explained to me at that point. And at that time, I did not know the difference. You know, when they're telling you, well, if you want to grow old and see your kids and this is your best bet that you take the blame for one of the murders and Jackie Montanez will take the blame for the other. So it's like they leave you with no choice because you're going to put your children's before anything. So I just went ahead and signed that um, statement. And of course, there's more insanity coming our way, right? Because there's a witness who ends up testifying to seeing the murders from her apartment window, even though we find out later, right? I guess, Justin, your investigation uncovered some interesting things about that. Sure. So after they, you know, use this snitch testimony to get to Marilyn, they now have to build the case up. And this woman claimed to see the shooting from her apartment. And the first weekend I was working on this case, I drove to Chicago with my students and stood right in front of her apartment building. And it was crazy because all you had to do is go to the park to realize that she was lying. And when I measured it off, the distance between her apartment and the bathroom where the shooting occurred in front of, it was 489 feet. And she claimed at night in the dark with hardly any lighting, she saw Jackie hand this gun to Marilyn and do this shooting. Now, this is like saying you were sitting in a football stadium behind one end zone in the dark, and you saw someone hand somebody a hot dog behind the opposite end zone. I'm going to take your analogy one step further, because 489 feet is closer to two football fields, and it's dark, and there was foliage in the way, right? So, I mean, they don't even have that in a football stadium. I've never seen one with foliage. So... There you go with your law students, and it takes you five minutes to realize that this whole thing is complete horseshit. It was factually impossible for her to see what she said, and nobody investigated it. Now, when we finally tracked her down, coincidentally, the one person who said they saw this shooting, the one person in the city of Chicago, was in a relationship with one of the victims. And none of that stuff was ever reported or investigated. So that's the bad identification portion of this case. So now we have bad cops, bad snitch testimony, and bad identification. And then there's this lawyer, this lawyer in quotes, Jeremiah Lynch. So he was hired to represent uh, Marilyn. There were friends who hired him. Um, He was paid a retainer. Uh, I don't know if he capitulated his role in this case because he figured there was no more money coming. So why not just plea this out? Uh, you know, a death penalty case is, takes a lot of time and energy and doing a trial. It's very expensive and time consuming. Um, but he took this $10,000 retainer. And as a result, he had a couple of meetings with Marilyn, short meetings. And he didn't meet with the district attorney and he didn't go to the crime scene even though later on when he was questioned, he, he wasn't that far away, his office from the crime scene, and he claimed that maybe he jogged by there one time. Uh, just basic stuff wasn't done, and he had no training in this. And this was his final case as a lawyer. After Marilyn was sentenced to death, he actually went, you know, took off out of the courtroom, and it took me a year to find him. Usually lawyers are easy to find. And when I found him, he was studying to be a priest at University of Detroit. 
and he now is a Catholic priest. And, uh, you know, if this was a, a movie, we'd have to change his name because it would be too corny that his name was Father Lynch. Oh. And he literally did lynch uh, Marilyn in this case due to his incompetence. The Pacers Foundation is a proud supporter of this episode and of the Last Mile organization, which provides business and tech training to help incarcerated individuals successfully and permanently re-enter the workforce. The Pacers Foundation is committed to improving the lives of Hoosiers across Indiana, supporting organizations dedicated primarily to helping young people and students. For more information on the work of the Pacers Foundation or the Last Mile program, visit pacersfoundation.org or thelastmile.org. This episode is sponsored by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, a leading international law firm. The AIG Pro Bono Program provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. And recently, they announced that working to reform the criminal justice system will become a key pillar of the program's mission. Paul Weiss, has long had an unwavering commitment to providing impactful pro bono legal assistance to the most vulnerable members of our society and in support of the public interest, including extensive work in the criminal justice area. So Marilyn's lawyer, this ex-lawyer who's now a priest, gave her terrible, and that's not even a strong enough word, counsel, because when you plead guilty, there's almost always some sort of a deal made and leniency given. But in this case, there was no deal on the table. So she doesn't even get a trial. And on top of that, her right to present evidence of innocence at that time and into the appellate process had been waived. So she went straight to a sentencing hearing in front of a jury. And it's just the prosecution telling 12 normal everyday people what a terrible, violent, evil person she is. And then there's the question of whether she gets death or whether she gets life in prison. Now, the reason there was, this was so incompetent is because you could at least make an argument if the sentencing was being done by a judge that the judge had sort of off the record indicated this isn't going to be a death case. But when it's a jury, you have no assurances of anything. So the jury now gets to hear everything that the prosecution wants to put on. Crime scene photos of dead bodies, testimony from the victim's family, all these things in the sentencing phase of a death case. And Marilyn ends up getting sentenced to death. And it's worth noting that Illinois, um, I don't know how long ago it was, more than 10 years ago, there was a uh, professor at Northwestern who assigned his students to find innocent people on death row. And the students found 11 innocent people on death row. Mm -hmm. Students, by the way. And at that point, Governor Ryan, at the end of his term, commuted the death sentences of everyone on death row in Illinois because he realized that during, I think during his term, they'd executed 10 people. And here these students had found 11 innocent ones. So his... Right. You know, they weren't even batting 500, even if they got it right on the ones they executed. And it's extremely unlikely that they didn't execute some innocent people along the way. So, you know, they were maybe getting it right about three out of 10 times. And we're talking about the death penalty, for Christ's sakes. So, Marilyn, can you give us some insight into what it was like on death row as a young 
mother now separated from her children, thrown into this twilight zone nightmare? Well, when I first arrived to um, Dwight and I was taken to Cottage 15, where it's basically segregation and they have a wing where they held the death row inmates and it's basically glass where segregation inmates can see the death row inmates and they put me past that glass into a cell and I went in the room. They had brought me some boxes with clothing, all my beddings and everything that's required from the institution to give to you and wouldn't make my bed. I just sat there and started praying and I just kept praying and praying, got on my knees and I'm like, Lord, just take the reins, whatever, you know, whatever you want me to do, I'm here and I'm going to do it. You know, just let me be at ease. Let me be at peace. Let me be right by you and let me get through this as fast as I can. You know, it was a beginning of a new start for me away from everybody and getting to know new people. And um, the officer came back and saw me praying and kind of disturbed me. He's like, hey, Miss Malero, would you like the chuckle open? And I'm like, Sure. Left the chuck hole open. The girls came by, introduced themselves to me, and they sat there and they prayed with me, you know, through the chuck hole. And so, you know, it was like an experience being back there on death row. I try to stay as active as I possibly could back there. You know, you're not allowed to be with other offenders, but the people that were back there. So we had moments to where we were able to come out an hour at a time or two people at a time. I enjoyed it for the most part. Not that I enjoy being on death row, but the way I was treated, I was loved and cared for. I was tend to, they would always constantly pray for me. We had um, lieutenants and officers, you know, kind of stay back there with us, keeping us company and praying with us. And because you get to know these officers, if they're a part of you, you know, they no longer become officers. You know, some of them are compassionate and their heart goes out to you and they try to spend as much time as they possibly can, you know, keeping you on a positive note. And majority of the times I would stay in my room and I would try to sleep my days away. And the officer were like, Miss Malero, get up, get up, let's go, let's go to the yard or whatever. And I would go just to, you know, stay motivated. I tried to do some schooling. I enrolled in myself for college Within three months, they came back and told us back there that we were not worthy enough to take any schooling because we were death row inmates. We were, you know, about to be executed. So they took the schooling from us. And one of the ladies back there decided that, hey, okay, so let's get some sponsors. Let's write the church and see if they would, you know, sponsor us and pay for some schooling for us. And that's what we did. We started writing several churches, organizations to try to see if we got sponsors. You know, I was blessed to get two different sponsors to get some of my education. You know, I have diploma certificates right now. I have like four more modules left before I attain uh, my associate's degree on theology. And it hasn't been easy. It's been kind of a a rough time in prison because prison's not designed for you to be comfortable. It's designed for you to be uncomfortable, for you to stay in trouble. But it all determines on the individual inside and what is it that you want to do and accomplish while you're there. So I was determined to do the right thing, not just by me, but for my children and my family and for my attorneys who were fighting hard to get my release. So I owed it to everybody, not just myself. 
So I pretty much stayed busy trying to stay focused on a positive note while I was there. Do you think they knew you were innocent? Yes, they did. They knew from the moment that I got there because before my arrival, Montanez was already at Dwight Correctional Center. And she was always bragging about, you know, killing these guys. So they already knew that I was innocent. And Justin, Jackie signed affidavits and admitted verbally numerous times that she alone planned and executed the murders. So these are the arguments that we made for years and years and years. But the problem was no one was willing to listen to them as long as that police stood. And Marilyn never had an opportunity to present this evidence in a trial. So the process of how the hell this thing finally unraveled itself, it took, God, a better part of two and a half decades, really, right? Yeah, 25 years I was working on it. I mean, when I started this case, to put it in context, I was 29 and Marilyn was 24. And uh, now I'm 55 and I won't say how old Marilyn is, but (laughs) it's been a long journey. So um, now that death sentence got reversed by the Illinois Supreme Court because the prosecution got greedy in the sentencing phase. And in the prosecution's closing argument to the jury actually said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Ms. Malero filed a motion to suppress her confession in this case. That shows she has no remorse, and that's another reason to sentence her to death. Now, the problem with that argument is you're basically saying because somebody asserted a constitutional right, they should be executed based on that. And when it went in front of the Illinois Supreme Court, the Illinois Supreme Court ruled unanimously in Maryland's favor to reverse the death sentence, saying like you cannot use a constitutional right as an aggravating circumstance, and also... We don't even see a logical connection between a lawyer filing a motion and then a person not having remorse. So then we went back to a new sentencing. Um, I handled that sentencing along with the uh, Chicago Public Defender's Office. I first tried to get in all the innocence evidence, but it was very difficult because they didn't want to hear it because they said this isn't about whether she's innocent or guilty. This is about whether she gets sentenced to death because the court refused to withdraw her plea. So Marilyn's always been stuck with this plea. She then gets sentenced to natural life, which was the best case scenario out of that proceeding. And then we start this two decades long odyssey trying to get her out of prison or get her a new trial. I took the case up on appeal from there. Uh, We went into federal court. We argued the ineffective assistance of counsel federal court, the oral argument with it was really frustrating. One of the justices kept saying, well, it was her decision to plead. And I said, Your Honor, this is like going to a doctor's office and they say you're going to be dead in 10 minutes if you don't have open heart surgery. And you saying, okay, your right to effective assistance of counsel means getting good advice. And there was no way this advice was good. But I lost. Uh, I petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court, lost petitioned the governor's office three separate times for clemency. I filed a petition in the United Nations trying to declare Chicago's justice system as a human rights violation where they allow people to plead guilty and get death on a plea bargain. And due to all the incompetence in this case, the United Nations has still not ruled on that petition. (laughs) So there's been a lot of proceedings. And ultimately, the most successful one occurred just a few months ago. And that was finally another petition to the governor asking for her release, laying the case out. 
that evidence had never really seen the light of day. It's madness. I mean, the idea that she was prevented from presenting overwhelming evidence of innocence is nuts. It's absolutely nuts. It's a terrible indictment of our system. There should be some mechanism for justice to see the light of day. Of course, the last resort in this case was a clemency from the governor. And, and by the way, it wasn't just me that petitioned for that. It was the Exoneration Project, the Illinois Innocence Project. As you said, there's been a lot of innocence work in Chicago over the past few decades. And there's a lot of great lawyers and organizations there doing it. I, I know I called so many people trying to uh, uh, get this on the governor's desk that there's probably people listening who are like, oh, Flom, you bothered to crap out of me on this case for so long. But anyway, it doesn't matter because the point is that it finally worked. So Marilyn, so October 9th of uh, 2019, there's a clemency hearing. And then there's a, God, almost uh, seven months go by, mm -hmm. uh, almost to the day until April 6, 2020. How did you find out that the governor had granted you clemency? I had surgery not too long ago. And one of the officers that sat with me at the hospital ended up working with internal affairs and she comes to my room. She's like, Hey, Marilyn, I need to see you. And I'm like, yeah, everybody's like, Oh, shucks. I ace here. Hi, you're contraband, you know? So she's like, no, come here. I need to speak to you. I'm like, okay. And she's like, do you know? And I'm like, Oh my God, you're leaving me too. And she's like, Oh, you don't know. I'm like, don't know what she whispered in my ear. And she's like, no, you're going home. I'm like, stop playing with me. And she's like, I'm for real. I'm like, stop playing with my emotions. This is not funny. I love you. You're good to me. You were good to me then. But right now you're kind of, you know, working a little nerve. She's like, no, no, I'm for real. She's like, Officer Dorsey is up there at the business office right now, shutting down your account, doing all your paperwork. The people for the parole board is coming to see you. You need to sign the paperwork. The governor is sending you your release form. You need to sign it. I said, I believe it when I see it. And I looked at her and she's like, I'm for real. I'm like, okay, I believe you. So then there's two officers who are just, they go above and beyond. They're very compassionate. And I'm very fond of them because they break their neck to help women in there. And Lamar and Hardison were like, Miss Malero, come to the day room right now. And I'm like, oh, shucks. And they were like, we're about to announce it on the intercom that you're going home. I'm like, no, 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 no. Please do not do that just yet. They were like, why? Because I don't want the girls to be in an uproar because once they find out that I was going home because they've been waiting and waiting impatiently. We were on lockdown. Difficult situation to where we couldn't see each other. I felt like maybe a riot would have kicked out in the on the unit, you know. So what we did was we waited till the next morning. So... I woke up about four o'clock in the morning and started packing my things and giving everything I had away. I didn't care. I didn't want to take nothing home but my Bible, my pictures, my schoolwork, and my legal work. That's all I walked out of there with. Everything else was left behind. And the lieutenant came with the paperwork. I signed it. Parole board came. I signed it at seven o'clock in the morning when count was clear. They're like, we got to get you out the institution so you won't be on our eight o'clock count. I'm like, okay. So we went to the BFI, took my picture, took the fingerprints, took my stuff to property and was headed out the front gate. And right at the Sally port where the visitors come in outside at the gate, 
is where my brothers were waiting for me. And all the wardens were there. The administration was there, Heidi Brown and other people, and they, you know, hugged me. We knew we didn't have it. The coronavirus, we hugged and said our goodbyes, you know, shed tears. And everybody was kind of mad that I didn't say bye to the ladies in the institution, but I couldn't because we were on lockdown, you know. So, I mean, when the girls found out, the officers blasted it. Hey, Malero's going home. And everybody started hollering out the window, trying to let the other ladies on other units know that I was going home. And, you know, they were hollering and screaming, don't forget about us, don't forget about us. I tell you, Marilyn, when I got the call that that you were getting out, I couldn't even speak. It's just, it's just been so long. And, uh, yeah, it's heartbreaking. I'm, I'm glad it's over, but I really hope we can learn from this story and I hope some changes are made. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning. It's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Covino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. 
And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Did you get a chance to see your children while you were in prison or how, what was that communication like over all those 26 years? I was pretty blessed. I had a family who would take turns bringing my kids to see me constantly. So in that perspective, I you know, was very grateful for my family. So throughout my whole incarceration, I was able to see them. It was heartbreaking sometimes because my oldest son will always try to undo the handcuffs to release me and stuff, you know, and he will always be like, come on, mom, let's go, let's go. And I'm like, no, baby, I got to stay here in school. He's like, mom, you're not in school, you're in jail, you know, so they pretty much knew. So at that point, I knew that I had to keep it real with them and be like, yeah, mommy's in jail, you know, but not for long. And I'll be home with you guys. You know, it took them to be grown men now, but I'm blessed to be here with them and be able to spend time with them and my grandkids and my family. Since I've been out here, I've been on a movement trying to focus back on those ladies that are still there that are also innocent that no one knows about because like myself, I've been fighting and it's been falling on deaf ears and it's the same thing with the women that are in there. So I am fighting hard with the Exoneration Project to make these ladies known. So that's what I'm working on right now. You've really hit the ground running, and it's awesome to see that your spirit is beyond. And all I can say about that is welcome home. And of course, there was another development, which is that in May of this year, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office began a comprehensive review of now-retired Detective Ronaldo Guevara's cases in what has now been called one of the biggest policing scandals in U.S. history. And let me just say that again. One of the biggest policing scandals in U.S. history. This is the detective, well, the two detectives that were, you know, responsible for your wrongful conviction. And what, but Justin, what about Ernest Halverson? Yeah, he's been tied into these cases as well. Um, you know, as usual, it's not one bad apple. There was a lot of bad things happening in Chicago back then, and there's still problems now. And fortunately, we have organizations like the Exoneration Project in Chicago, the Illinois Innocence Project, the Center on Wrongful Convictions. It's a, it's a real hotbed of wrongful convictions in Chicago. And they're not just letting these lay down. You know, for a long time, it's been about just getting our clients out of prison. But we need real reform and we need to examine these cases after they happen and look for the people responsible and hold them accountable and then look at their other cases. I've been talking for years about how Detective Guevara was part of Marilyn's case because people have been looking at him for a long, long time. But the problem is, in our system, getting the truth into a format that then can get presented within our judicial system and have a result is very, very difficult. It's the greatest frustration of my life is that often we know the truth and we have the facts, 
but for some reason the system won't allow those facts to be presented or won't give you an opportunity to to get the right result and and that's taken away 27 years of Marilyn's life it's so remarkable to sit here and listen to Marilyn and you know it just dawned on me she hasn't had one negative thing to say there hasn't been any trace of and maybe I'm just not hearing it but I don't think it's there of bitterness no I mean, she's focused on during this interview on the things, the bright spots, the positive things that happened while she was on death row, while she was in prison and in maximum security prison for 26 years for something she didn't do. So all I can say is you are a blessing and it is an honor to be able just to talk to you and to be a, a part of your story in some small way. Well, I kind of knew that eventually... You know, I've always believed in God and I've always placed my faith in him and God allowed me to see me through that. It's going to be okay that I was going to come through this if I kept believing and maintaining my faith in him. It takes a lot to maintain faith after everything you've been through, but more power to you. And she is extraordinary. You know, you said about how positive and upbeat she is. I've had times over the last couple of decades when Marilyn has tried to cheer me up about the case. And, you know, that's a very strange thing. She's She's been a believer. She's an incredibly strong woman. And that's what we see with a lot of exonerees. They are different and they are survivors and they are fighters. And that's why they make it through this nightmare. Well said. And it is um, justice delayed, but at least in this case, justice was not denied. And um, there's still fighting left to be done on uh, Marilyn's behalf. And I know she's in the best possible hands with you and the California Innocence Project, as well as all the other great people that have been involved in helping to get you home, Marilyn. And I want to put a plug in too. You've heard today about the work of the California Innocence Project, as well as the two other organizations that helped free Marilyn, the Illinois Innocence Project and the Exoneration Project. And we're going to have a link in our bio to all of those uh, wonderful organizations. Uh, Please go click on the link and learn more and join us and get involved. So this is the part of the show where I, first of all, get to thank both of you for um, coming on and, and sharing your thoughts and your perspective and your spirit. And then I turn my microphone off and kick back in my chair with my headphones on, close my eyes and just listen to whatever else you have to say. Marilyn, we're going to save you the best for last. Um, And I'm really looking forward to that. So now again, um, Justin Brooks, founder and director of the California Innocence Project, law professor and human rights fighter extraordinaire, Thank you again for being here with us today. You know, this case changed my life. Marilyn changed my life. I was teaching law school in a nice, quiet life in the middle of Michigan with a nice little Victorian house. And um, I'd been a criminal defense attorney for a number of years in Washington, D.C. But when I got involved in this case, I was shocked. I was shocked that in the United States of America, a 21-year-old individual could be sentenced to death on a plea bargain with no investigation into her case, Um, a conspiracy between the police and the lawyers and the judges. Everybody let this happen. They let this 21-year-old fall through this giant crack 
And it shocked me. And I didn't think I could be shocked as a criminal defense attorney. And so it, it just changed my life. It, it caused me to leave my job in Michigan, move to California, start the California Innocence Project. And, and this case is the inspiration for the more than 30 people we've been able to free in California. I don't think any of that would have happened without, without Marilyn. Um, and now, even a few months after she's out of prison, it's still not real to me because it's been part of my life for so long. It's almost like I don't know who I am if I'm not representing Marilyn Malero and trying to get her out of prison. So um, I'm really happy we could tell her story today. It's an important story. And uh, it's certainly a big part of who I am. Amen to that. And wow, Marilyn, that must be an amazing feeling to hear Justin say those words and to know that you are a key element in the freedom of so many others who were wrongfully convicted of 30 and counting. So, and now what we've all been waiting for, um, no pressure. <laughs> um, thank you again, Marilyn Malero, for being here, for being so strong. And, uh, and we'll turn it over to you for closing arguments. I want to thank you. I want to thank everybody who's been involved in my case throughout my 27 plus years. I've had a lot of good people working on my case and some of them are still in contact with me. And that's a very, you know, emotional thing, knowing that these people can still stay in contact, which they didn't have to, but they are, you know, so I take that to heart. Prison life was, has not been easy for me. You know, I've had some struggles, my ups and downs, you know, my downfalls, you know, and it's part of the struggle while you're in prison. And sometimes you have to set up a mechanism so that people won't, you know, think that you're vulnerable or take the best of you. So I always had my head up and always stay positive. I've always tried to do my best to help other women. Um, my experience with my situation in my case had helped me to deal with other women in their situations as well and help them cope with, you know, their pain and suffering and being able to be away from their families. And, you know, while I've been incarcerated, I've helped create different programs, different groups and joined the Phoenix Rising. And as soon as a week within joining Phoenix Rising, which is a program for long-term prisoners, I was voted in to become a committee member. And, you know, I was honored by that because a lot of women had respect for me and a lot of my ideas and We've always succeeded in everything that we've tried to accomplish. And the wardens would allow me to partake in a lot of the things and be a part of what they would do in the institution. And they asked me and Tammy Fike if we would create a program for the elderly and the disabled. And we took a whole unit, which was House Unit 6, and we created that, which became a safe haven for those women. So they would not be mistreated, you know, and misled and extorted and beat down in whatever other case could have taken place with these women. And we've created various programs, groups, activities. You know, we constantly always pray for the unit so the women could get along together and not create a lot of chaos. And I'm very grateful that I'm here now. I'm grateful for Justin. You know, Justin always told me, hey, Marilyn, I'm never divorcing this case so you get home. But like I told Justin, I'm home, but you're still not divorcing me. You're stuck with me for life. So, you know, now he's got to deal with me. <laughs> so, you know, and Lauren and the other Lauren and, you know, Cindy, the uh, all these people. So I'm very grateful. And 
at this moment I'm trying to do me I'm still at peace I'm happy with the women I've became while I was incarcerated and I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing and that's helping people while I'm out here and reaching back out to the women that are still in there as well as to the men you know I'm in supportive of all the Gravara victims and I'm just going to continue to be me and be positive and one day I hope to put together my work release center to help some of these women who don't have places to go and that's my story that's my life and that's my dream and I believe I was designed to do this Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Thank you.